Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Our Foundations. This is your host, Joshua, and today's episode will be on blockchain again. This time, we are covering the other use cases aside from cryptocurrencies. Now, cryptocurrencies will still play a part in some of these, but the main focus will be basically what else is blockchain good for? What else is it used for? I will start off similarly to how I did the episode on cryptocurrencies where I focus on the big player, which in this case will be not Bitcoin, but Ethereum. So I'll start off and I'll introduce Ethereum, talk about that a little bit, and that'll get us into some of these different use cases. We'll talk about smart contracts and censorship, zero-knowledge proofs, DAOs, tokenized assets, IDs, voting, micropayments, all kinds of stuff. And we'll get into all those different things, and that will be today's episode. And after this, you should have a very good idea of what blockchain is, how it's used, what it's used for, what the potential is. This should wrap up all of that information for you. And in my opinion, this content today is some of the most interesting and has some of the most impactful potential out of all the possibilities for blockchain. So let's begin by starting off with Ethereum. Now, Ethereum is the number two player in the blockchain space as far as the size, the number of developers, all this kind of stuff. It was developed mainly by a man named Vitalik Buterin. And although I say man, he was actually a very young man. He was still a teenager at the time when he released the white paper for Ethereum. But his thinking was that Bitcoin and blockchain have a whole lot of potential and there's a lot here that could be done. However, the code for Bitcoin does not allow for a lot of these different use cases that Vitalik had thought of and what he was thinking could potentially happen with this new blockchain technology. He also saw a few things about Bitcoin that he thought were not really designed very well. There was some in his opinion, some missing forethought, some things that probably should have been done differently to make Bitcoin more successful and more secure and many other possibilities there. And so he ended up coming up with this idea for Ethereum. And Ethereum is another use of blockchain technology with the overall goal to build a platform for decentralized applications. So this isn't just a cryptocurrency. This is a blockchain technology-enabled platform that many different things could be built on. The early days of Ethereum had many names that are very big in the blockchain space now. And some of those I will mention quickly. We've got Joseph Lubin, and he ended up being the founder of Consensus, which is one of the biggest blockchain companies and investment groups that are out there right now. You've also got Gavin Wood. He was the one that introduced Solidity, which is the coding language that is used in Ethereum. He was also the founder of Parity and the Polkadot Protocol, which are also fairly big players in the blockchain space now. Another one of the founding members was Charles Hoskins, and he ended up later founding Cardano and IOHK, Input Output Hong Kong. I'll talk about those two in a 
upcoming episode. And then there were also four others that were involved that also were very highly esteemed and very well known in their fields. And all these people came together, started creating Ethereum, and over time, different ones dropped out. Charles Hoskins dropped out because he didn't like the direction that Ethereum was going on a business and organizational front, and others dropped out for other reasons. And as the project evolved, it uh, wheedled down a lot of these names, and now Vitalik is mainly the face of Ethereum, although there are still many other big players involved. Ethereum actually has more developers than any of the other similar blockchain projects that are out there. Now, as for a little more about what Ethereum is, it basically is a platform that allows for many other things to be built and uploaded onto it. And in the background, it has the EVM, which is the Ethereum Virtual Machine. And the Ethereum Virtual Machine basically runs everything in the background and works as the computing power and processing power and translates code and all this kind of stuff. It basically is the machine that runs everything and makes everything work in the background. And so that's working in the background. You have the platform that's out there. You also have a team kind of steering the development that's going on called the Ethereum Foundation. And basically the way this works is that a lot of Ether, which is the, for lack of a better term, the currency that is used on the Ethereum network. And a lot of this was set aside at the beginning and it was set aside for the Ethereum Foundation. And that way the Ethereum Foundation would have basically funds to work with and to fund themselves and fund development and that kind of stuff. And so as the years went on, the value of Ether rose dramatically and the Ethereum Foundation ended up having millions of dollars at their disposal and they still have a very large sum of money as of this recording that they use for incentivizing development and doing bug bounties and all different kinds of things to basically help steer and push along the project and make sure that it is still going strong and that it is still progressing. Another group that works kind of in the background of the Ethereum project is the EEA, and that is the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. And this is a group that has many very well-known companies that are a part of it. I cannot even mention all of the ones that you would even recognize personally, but I will just highlight a few. You've got um, different universities, such as Cornell University and others. You've got people in the automotive industry, such as the Toyota Research Institute. You've got technology, such as Samsung and Microsoft. You also have people in the banking industry, such as JP Morgan and Citibank. There's also payment processing like MasterCard and many, many other companies. You can tell by the caliber of companies that I'm listing off here that this is a pretty big deal. There are many different companies. There are many different industries that are represented. There are many different people working on this. Typically, these companies are devoting a few representatives that are working on 
projects related to the Ethereum platform, and there are many different incentives for this. Number one, it helps them keep up to date on technology and the future of technology, which would be blockchain and Ethereum being the one with probably the most potential out there right now. Number two, it's also beneficial because they can keep up to date on what their standards and what their protocols should be so that they are able to keep up with the times and the technology as it releases and they can prepare for that. So if they're involved with creating technology, then they know what's coming. Not only that, they can help shape it. So if there are certain things that would be very beneficial for being able to bring projects over to a blockchain platform from a legacy format, or if there are just things about their industry that make it a little difficult for how to process and sort data, but if they're involved with developing a blockchain system, then they can make sure that it actually works really well for their industry and the certain criteria that work best for them. There's just all different kinds of reasons that make it very beneficial for companies to be involved with this. And like I said, there are many, there are dozens of well-known international companies that are involved with this and many, many more aside from those. Now, let's just move away from Ethereum. That gives you just a very broad look. We could go for hours on everything related to Ethereum, but I'm not going to. This is not a case study on Ethereum. This is just the introduction to all the other things aside from cryptocurrencies. And Ethereum is the biggest platform that allows for these things to take place. Like I said, it's a platform that allows for other applications to be built on top of it. And it's not the only one. There are many other blockchain platforms that are out there that are popular and that are currently being used. You have things like Tron and Cardano and Stellar and EOS and on and on, Ethereum Classic. You've got so many different things, and they are all basically providing platforms for things to be built on top of them. They all have their different niches that they work really well in, different things that they have focused on. Some have focused on speed, whereas others have focused on security, and others have focused on privacy, and they just all have their different specialities, and they all have a role to play, or at least many of them have a role to play. And so let's go ahead and talk about some of these specific things that are being built and being enabled by having a blockchain platform to build on. And the first one I want to mention is smart contracts. That's one of the biggest deals, and I have mentioned them before. And basically what it is is a contract, just like you would think of a contract, but it exists in a digital format and it is coded such that it automatically performs a function. So basically it is coded to have inputs and outputs. So for example, it could be coded to say that when the contract receives 10 ether from a party, it will automatically release this digital photograph to that same party. And this could basically happen automatically. So if this contract existed and had a store of, let's say, 100 digital photographs that are unique and that are linked to the Ethereum blockchain, so you know that they are all unique and all individual and all legitimate, well, what would happen is that basically anybody 
could send 10 Ether to this contract and they would automatically get one of these photographs. And when they are all gone, then the contract would probably be coded to just expire. And then if anybody tried sending more Ether to it, it would just send it back or it would cancel the transaction or whatever. There are many different ways of setting that up. But you can see how this actually cuts out a lot of the middlemen and kind of wasted space in how to fulfill a contract in today's world. Because today, you need to have the seller involved. They usually need to have a lawyer involved. You have to have paperwork involved. You've got to have someone that's handling that transaction and making sure it gets from one place to the other, someone that's in charge of that. You've got all these different things that you need to make sure happen in order for someone to be able to get the product they're paying for. And there's a lot of different parties involved. However, with a smart contract, it's basically just set up where it happens automatically. Someone just sends in money and they get the product and that's it. So you can tell that this works best for digital material and probably would not work as well for physical material, at least not in this way. But it very well could very easily place an order through a manufacturer and have that manufacturer ship the said item to the customer. And this could be physical things that are happening through a digital smart contract. There are many different options here. You've got things like the gig economy and freelance work where somebody is basically taking a gig to, let's say, write a blog on Ethereum. And so there is another party that is wanting to do this and wanting to pay for it. And let's say they're willing to pay 50 Ether for whoever will write this blog and maybe have it going for six months, once a week, and that is the gig. And so another person, this is a writer of some kind, takes this job and wants to do it. Well, in the current world, you would have to have probably a third-party app that's in between there. There are things like Moonlighting and other apps and companies out there that handle this, and they basically play the third party and connect people that need things done with people that are looking for these types of side gigs. And then they make sure that they get money from the person that's hiring. They make sure that the work is actually done by the people doing the work and that they get the money and they provide some sort of security for making that whole process work and making it streamlined and for posting things such as what they want and providing a platform for bidding on said project and all the different functions that need to happen. That's the way it works now. However, if you add a smart contract into the mix, then you would be able to have this job that gets posted and basically anybody could fulfill it. And what would happen is that anybody writes a blog post and they upload that blog post to the smart contract. Now, you might want to have a verification layer in there. Maybe you could use AI. Maybe you could have a certain person vet that article and make sure that it's legitimate. You know, whatever you want to do, there are many different ways of doing it. But basically what could happen is that the person writing the blog could submit the blog directly to the smart contract 
And then the smart contract would verify in whatever way it is going to do the verification and then automatically send the certain amount of ether that the writer deserves and has earned straight to the author of this blog. And this could all happen automatically. And obviously, this cuts out a lot of different things. Now, you would be able to make it to where the first person to submit something basically locks the contract between them and the smart contract. And that way you don't have 20 different authors sending all these different articles in. Basically the first one to send one in and have it get verified, there is a locked relationship between them and the smart contract. And that is the only person that will be able to submit a new blog post and then they'll get locked in on this side gig. They automatically get paid when they send it in. And the article is automatically sent to the smart contract, which would probably be written to automatically either post this article or send it to whoever is running the website or magazine or whatever it is that's wanting to use this blog. And all this could be done in the background automatically through smart contracts. So the potential is basically unlimited. There are so many different things you could do with smart contracts, and I think you get the rough idea. So I will move on from there and go into censorship-resistant platforms. So I talked about this in relation to cryptocurrencies, how it is censorship-resistant and can't be stopped by any single party or any government or anybody else. This is all done in a decentralized manner, and I talked about the benefits of that. Well, these same is true for a platform and probably it is even more necessary and has an even bigger impact overall. Think about the things that are used and that are built on online platforms today. You've got things like publishing, you've got things like news, you've got Things like chats and forums and all different kinds of things. Most of this, I would say, would be related to the free speech issue. And with the current setup and the internet and ISP providers and companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook, there is a lot of power to censor certain content if that provider really wants to. They can do that fairly easily. It's not really a big deal. However, when you look at something like the Horizon Project, for example, that is a blockchain project that is mainly working on this issue. They have a privacy currency called Zen, and that used to be the name of the project was Zen, and now it is now Horizon with a Z. And they have this cryptocurrency. They also have a publishing platform where you will be able to publish anything. It will not be censored and it will be there on the blockchain, irrefutable. No one can do anything about it. They are working on a chat platform as well where you have a very similar thing. You have private chats and no one can censor it. No one can read it. No one's collecting data. No one can shut it down. It is this decentralized chat system. Horizon is also operating on a DAO model, a decentralized autonomous organization. And I will get into that later. But... um Horizon is just an example of a company that's doing this kind of thing where they are building something that provides for 
applications and platforms and things like this that cannot be censored. They can't be shut down. There is no one tracking them and gathering data on them. And it is basically the ideal of blockchain put into these many different uses. Now, what else can be censorship resistant? Well, basically anything, any app that you can think of, any software program, anything, any platform, it could be done on a blockchain in a way that is censorship resistant, which is kind of a big deal. Think about something like uh, presenting news in North Korea or in China. What if you have an opinion that is contrary to the government? What if it's against the government? What if you're calling out corruption in the government? Well, that's not going to go so well if you try publishing something through traditional lines. That's not going to work out well for you. You are probably going to have some issues there. However, what if you had a platform where you could publish content, you could publish articles, you can publish proof of whatever it is you're uncovering, and you could do this in a way that's private and anonymous and cannot be traced back to you? Well, now you can get that information out there to anyone and everyone, and there is absolutely nothing that your government can do to stop it. Another good thing to keep private would be your data. So all the stuff that is recorded about what you do, what you buy, where you go, how you spend your time, who you talk to, what you say, what you post, all this stuff is data that is currently stored through different companies on the internet. So Facebook has all kinds of data on you, as does Google, as does Amazon, as do many other companies, advertisement companies, for example. And this is data that in some ways is fairly harmless. It's not really that big of a deal to some degree. At the same time, if a company or corporation or if a government or if any group wants to do you harm in any kind of way or wants to set you up for some sort of crime that you didn't commit or wants to bust you for a crime you did commit or who knows what if there is any kind of ill intent towards you and someone got a hold of all of this data that's recorded about you they could pretty much leverage it to do whatever they want they can even almost predict the future Many companies can actually predict what you are likely to buy before you even know that you are planning on buying it. And this is very accurate. They have gotten this down pretty well, all based on your data. So, in some ways, you might want some companies to keep your data so that you get relevant ads when you're shopping or coupons get sent to you, you know, whatever it may be. There might be reasons why you might want your data stored and tracked and somebody to have access to it. But at the same time, there are many reasons why people would not want their data to be stored and tracked. And using a private blockchain is something that can really achieve this goal. One good example of a company that does this would be Brave with the Brave browser platform. And Brave is a browser that you can download on your phone or on your computer and use just like you would use Chrome or any other browser explorer, whatever, Firefox. But Brave is actually a blockchain platform. It specializes in things like privacy and preventing tracking of your information and web traffic. 
It also blocks pop-up ads, as does it block malware and other things like this. And all of this is done by default in the background. And when you use the Brave browser, it operates like any other browser. You don't really notice any of this stuff that's going on behind the scenes, but it is going on behind the scenes. It's adding layers of protection. It's adding layers of privacy and security without you having to do anything. It's even adding layers of convenience because you're not getting all the ads that usually pop up when you're using Chrome or some other browser. I actually started using the Brave browser about a year or two ago, and I love it. It's great. I've got it on my phone. I've got it on my computer. My wife has downloaded it, and she is definitely not a tech person, and she loves it. She noticed a difference right away. She noticed things that I didn't even notice, and um, it's something that's very practical, and I would highly recommend looking into it. But more than that, for this episode, it's an example of a platform, a blockchain project that fits this description of something that uses blockchain to improve privacy and security and prevent censorship. So moving on to the next use of blockchain technology, let's go to ZK Snarks or Zero Knowledge Proofs in general. So I have also mentioned these before, but let me talk a little bit about this and show how important this is and how much potential there is here. So a Zero Knowledge Proof basically allows for protocols and contracts to operate without collecting or revealing data of any sort. So let's look at the problem first in traditional circles. So you have a company, let's say a bank, and they are having to go through applications. So in order to get a loan, their customer would have to fill out an application, send that application to the bank. The bank has to review all these different data points and decide whether this person should or shouldn't be allowed to get a certain level of a loan. Now, the problem here, well, one of the problems here is that the bank now has a lot of personal information and data about that customer that they have to somehow keep secure. It is on their network and they have servers that are running things in the background for them. They have probably some sort of internet host. They're using some sort of application or portal to get this information from the customer to themselves. Even if it's a paper application, someone is inputting this information into a computer so that they can have a record of it. And when they do have that record, what do you do with it? Well, currently the banks keep it secure, and I would put that in air quotes, because there are plenty of instances where large corporations have had hacks and data leaks and people have been able to access a lot of this personal information with things like social security numbers and financial information and just all kinds of things like this, which, you know, is not such a good thing. So let's insert zero knowledge proofs here. So we're going to say that the bank is now going to use smart contracts with zero knowledge proofs. Now, like I said, this allows for basically decisions to be made without revealing the data. So basically what happens is that the bank creates this application for a loan and the customer who wants a loan gets the application, fills it out and sends it to a smart contract. Now, what this smart contract does is it uses zero knowledge proofs to verify information 
without actually revealing it to the bank. So what happens is the contract is written up such that it has all the criteria that are needed in order to be accepted for a loan of various amounts, whatever the amounts are and whatever the conditions are. The bank can set all that up. And what happens is the customer would send verified information to the smart contract for all the data points that the bank requires. They'll send in their debt levels, their income, their history, a credit check, you know, whatever it is the bank wants and the bank demands. They send all this not to the bank itself, but to the smart contract. Now, what the smart contract does is uses zero knowledge proofs to accept or deny that application. Now, they are going off of the criteria that was set up by the bank. So the bank is in charge of all this stuff. And the bank says that if a person has a certain debt-to-income ratio and they meet all these different requirements, then they can get a loan of a certain amount. That's how it works. It works that way today. Well, what happens here is that the smart contract is able to verify information from a customer, see whether they meet all this criteria, and in a verifiable way for the bank, let the bank know, hey, this person can get a loan for this amount. And we have verified it. They meet all the criteria, so you can go ahead and give it to them. Now, the bank can store that decision that is cryptographically provable that it has been carried out the way it was designed to be carried out and that the individual meets all the criteria that they need to meet. And so the bank can store this and basically prove, yes, this person met all the criteria and we're good to go. We're going to go ahead and give them this loan and carry on with the process. The advantage, obviously here, the main advantage at least, would be that the bank does not have to store any of this information. They're not responsible for it. They don't have it and they don't need it. So they do need to verify that the customer meets all these requirements, but there's no need for them to actually have all the data and store it. That's kind of pointless. Right now, they just need to because there's no other way of doing it. But if you use zero-knowledge proofs, all of a sudden, you can do this and verify this stuff and do it automatically without having to store all this information and be responsible for all this data. So there are many other use cases for zero-knowledge proofs. There's all kinds of ways that these can be used. I'm sure you can imagine many different times when information has to be verified, but ideally, neither party wants to be responsible for having that information stored in a large data center or on a bunch of servers for some corporation that can technically be hacked. And so instead, let's have a platform or process or application or whatever that uses zero-knowledge proofs and can verify the information without storing it. I don't have to give up my data to somebody and trust that a corporation is going to keep it safe. And a corporation doesn't have to take my data and be responsible and pay to keep it secure and keep it safe and have the horrible PR that comes along with a hack and a data breach that inevitably happens at some point. Zero-knowledge proofs are also used with many different cryptocurrencies to provide a layer of privacy. And these privacy cryptocurrencies are typically referred to as privacy coins. Now, there are many different privacy coins that use zero-knowledge proofs. For example, Zcash would probably be the most well-known related to zero-knowledge proofs. 
but PIVX uses zero-knowledge proofs as well, as does Monero. They recently implemented bullet proofs, and PIVX actually did the same with the bullet proofs, and that allowed for faster transactions, cheaper transactions, and other things like that. But bullet proofs use zero-knowledge proofs in order to add a layer of privacy to the currency. And basically, they're using zero-knowledge proofs to do exactly what we talked about, to verify information and verify that transactions are supposed to be validated and that they are legitimate, but they are doing this without having to deal with a bunch of data and storing a bunch of data and transferring a bunch of data, which actually enables the transactions to occur with less data than they would have otherwise needed, which means less computation time, less processing power, less size that is needed to be stored. So less memory requirements, all kinds of things like this. And so zero-knowledge proofs are being used in many different privacy coins for this purpose as well. And that probably was the most common use of zero-knowledge proofs at first. And then later, it has branched into many other aspects like I've talked about. So these are some of the many different possibilities for zero-knowledge proofs. I would like to now get into DAOs, and this is Decentralized Autonomous Organization, so capital D, capital A, capital O, and henceforth will be known as a DAO. And what a DAO is, is basically exactly what it sounds like. It is an organization that operates autonomously, and it does so in a decentralized manner, hence the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And there are many different things that obviously would have to happen in order for an organization to run this way. And it requires a lot of different things, a lot of planning, a lot of organization, a lot of setup. And these DAOs do, at least the successful ones, do have all of this. Now, some of the things I have mentioned before, such as Horizon and PIVX, are different projects that operate with a DAO, as does Cardano. And there are many other blockchain projects that use DAOs, and this is something that is a very different model from what the traditional model is for a company or an organization. Now, typically, the way this is set up is it's broken down into different areas. So one area may be governance and voting. So this is the layer that determines what happens on the network. So we talked about when I discussed Bitcoin about the difficulties with making decisions for the Bitcoin blockchain. And the DAO actually can solve these types of issues. So with a DAO, if you have a governance and voting system set up, then you can create a way for this stuff to happen. So basically the way it works in most projects, I'll use maybe Dash for example. Dash is a cryptocurrency that is made to be fairly private, fairly fast, and fairly cheap so that it can be used as an actual currency. And Dash has a DAO, that's how they operate. And the way it works is that if somebody wants to submit a proposal, they have to pay a certain amount of Dash in order to do so. So you don't have random people spamming all these different proposals and ideas. It's only people that are actually serious that think that 
it would be beneficial for the project as a whole, and thus it would be worth actually spending some of the currency yourself to get this idea considered. And so what happens is, let's say that I have an idea for a marketing campaign, and I think this will be very good for Dash, and I think they're going to get a lot of exposure, a lot more people will start using it, and it'll be really good for the project as a whole. Ideally, it will increase the value of the currency because there'll be more people that use it and more demand for it. And so I will more than make back my money if this is a successful thing. So what I do is I put up the required amount of Dash and I submit my proposal to the platform, the Dash platform for their DAO. And once I have done so, this proposal can be viewed by anyone that is able to vote on the Dash platform. They can read it, they can then vote on it, and there'll be a certain amount of time that people are allowed to vote on it. And then once all the votes are taken into account, I will find out if the, my proposal has been accepted or not. If it is accepted, then there is an automatic payment that comes to me, and I would then provide whatever service or idea that I had presented. I would use the funds to provide that idea and fulfill my end of the deal. And typically, this will work with installments and payments. Maybe I get a small lump sum up front, and that enables me to start this marketing campaign. And then maybe once a month, I have to submit updates and pr new proposals to get more of the funds to continue the marketing campaign. That's generally how it works for most DAOs. Now, with this, yes, there is a set of funds that exist somewhere. This is typically in a treasury. So oftentimes with these types of projects, there is a certain amount of funds that are allocated to a treasury. Many use a model of small transaction fees for every transaction that occurs on the blockchain network. A very small portion of that transaction is paid basically like a tax almost and is paid directly into the treasury and that treasury builds up funds. And the way it works is that when proposals are submitted and approved, then the funds come from the treasury to pay for those proposals and to continue the updates and progress for the network and further development and that kind of stuff. So that's generally the way that a treasury works. Now, there are many different models for all these, all this stuff that I'm talking about with treasuries, for example. Some have treasuries that indefinitely build and they can they can create these huge war chests with large sums of money, millions of dollars. And then there are other projects that actually will not allow the treasury to roll over every quarter, every month, every whatever period they want to do every year, just depends on the project. But some will actually take the money that's in the treasury. And once the time period has expired, then whatever is left and whatever has not been spent and allocated will then get burned. And the term burned basically means that the currency just gets destroyed. So we've talked plenty about inflation on this podcast. And imagine the opposite of inflation. So if instead of the government printing millions of dollars worth of the currency and that devalues the currency, what if the government actually took millions of dollars from the people and then just literally burned it, set it on fire, it disappeared and didn't exist anymore? 
Well, the remaining dollars in circulation would be worth a little bit more every time this happened. And that's the idea behind burning certain portions of funds. Now, another aspect of a DAO would be sustainability and upgrading and things like this, because when you create an organization like this and you don't have a CEO and a board and permanent employees and all this kind of stuff, if you don't have these things, then you really have to make sure you have set up a model that can adapt and that can grow and that can improve. And you need to do this in a sustainable way. So usually DAOs will be created with a way to upgrade the platform and the blockchain. There are also ways of hiring and firing people, of accepting proposals and denying them, like I mentioned earlier. There are ways of hiring different contractors to do different things and all different kinds of things that are needed for an organization. All the things that need to happen for a company to run, basically, and to do whatever it is that company does still needs to happen with a DAO, if not even more so. And so it's very important that they actually provide for this up front. And again, most of the good DAOs actually do. If there's something that they haven't thought of, then someone can submit a proposal, it can get accepted, then it can get implemented, and then all of a sudden, that thing that should have existed to begin with but didn't, now does exist and problem solved. And so that's kind of the way that it works. Overall, a DAO is basically organized decentralization. So like I said, there typically is not a CEO. There are not full-time employees. There are just very different structures that are set up. And instead of this being a very centralized thing with certain people in charge, certain people assigned to certain tasks in a way that is in a traditional hierarchy, instead of this, you have a very decentralized approach where anybody can plan on doing any work that needs to be done. And anybody can propose to do any certain work that they think should be done. And all the people that are involved with the project actually have a say-so in making these decisions when they vote. So some projects will allow anyone that holds the currency to vote. Some have it where you hold one coin, that's one vote, and that grows. For some people, it's one person, one vote. Sometimes projects will have it where only the people that are mining the currency or only those that are staking in what's known as masternodes with currencies that have that. Some projects basically limit voting to those people. It just depends on the project. Many of them are set up many different ways. But overall, they are all set up in a way that is decentralized, but highly organized. So another good example of this will be Cardano and IOHK, which I'll talk about in the case study episode, and I'll get into this a little more there, because I think at least two of the projects I'm highlighting in that episode do have a DAO model, and so that's something that I feel is very interesting, it's very innovative, and it can be extremely useful and has a lot of potential. So I'll go ahead and move on to the next topic, and that would be tokenized assets. So basically the idea here is that you take an asset and it can be anything, let's say a stock, so a share in a company. Well, you actually can have a stock and that does exist as an actual asset. But what you can do is you can basically lock up that asset 
and create a token that represents that asset. So instead of holding one share of Tesla stock, I can lock up that share of Tesla stock and have a token that re represents that one share of Tesla stock. And so I can then take that token and trade it, I can sell it, I can move it, I can do whatever I want with it, and then wherever it ends up, whether it's with me again or with somebody else, they can then just exchange this token back for the asset for one share of Tesla stock. And that's kind of the way it works, and this can happen with anything. So I'm going to give a few examples here because I know that's fairly high level. Uh, let's use real estate, for example, and I'll specifically focus on investment. So with real estate investing, the way it typically works is that you would either have to buy into what's known as a REIT, which is a company that owns lots of different properties, lots of different types of properties, all investment related, and they sell shares of stock in their company, which is how they raise money. And then they use that money to buy more properties. And ideally, they're making a profit because the value of these properties go up. Some of them are probably flips, some are rentals, some maybe new construction. There's just all different kinds of companies that do this, many different REITs of many different kinds. And that's kind of the traditional model for investing. It's either that or you or maybe you and a few other people go in on an investment property. So maybe you and a partner both invest together and get a mortgage on a duplex, and then you rent out that duplex to renters, and then you have rental income coming in that way. And so that is your investment property. There are you know, obviously many different ways of investing in real estate, but that's kind of some examples of the traditional model and the way it works now. However, what if you took a deed to a house, let's say it is a duplex, for example, and you tokenize that deed. So instead of it just being a deed and someone has to own it or there have to be co-owners on it, and that's really the only way to do it. Instead, what if you took that deed and broke it up into, let's say, a thousand tokens? And so every token represented one one thousandth of the value of that property, of that deed, of control over that property. And then what you could do is you could then sell tokens. And so if I owned a duplex and I'm an investor, but I really don't want the responsibility as much anymore, although I do still want some investment properties and I'm trying to figure out what to do. Well, what if I tokenized my duplex and because I don't want to get rid of everything, I don't want to just sell it, but I also do want to get rid of a lot of the responsibility. So what I could do is say tokenize my duplex and I'll do it in the way I mentioned before where I break it into 1000 tokens that represent my duplex. And then I will sell, let's say 700 of these tokens. And so I'm getting to keep a portion of this duplex, this property, I'm keeping 300 tokens and that's enough to basically get what I want out of it as an investment and I will get a return on it. But the majority stake I'm giving out to other people. And this may be one investor that buys up 700 tokens, or it might be 700 different investors that all buy one token. But now my duplex is tokenized and these tokens are out there on the market. And these tokens would then be able to be traded on different trading platforms. So let's say that I created my token on the Ethereum blockchain. If I did that and this token was what's referred to now as an ERC-20 token, that's the most 
common type of token, then it would be able to be traded on dozens of different exchanges held in dozens of different types of digital wallets. There would be all different kinds of options for people to buy and sell and trade and store my tokens for my duplex because there are that many options available now and that number is expanding for all of those things for the Ethereum blockchain and that is what my token exists on. And so with this, it enables lots of different things. So people can now become investors in real estate, even if they only have $100, say, to invest or $1,000 to invest. They can actually build a real estate portfolio. They can do this without opening a brokerage account, without reporting to their local government all the different investments they have and recording all their capital gains and all this kind of stuff. People can do this without having to get permission to do so. A lot of times with many investments, you have to be an, an accredited investor in order to get into the investment, which generally means you have to have either a very large income on a yearly basis or a large amount of wealth stored up. And uh, that varies depending on what the law is at the time. But that's the general rule. However, if you have tokenized assets like this, anybody can gain access to this and anybody can use it. And you get all these benefits of blockchain, such as a layer of privacy. You have a permissionless setup where anybody can gain access to that. You have equality of opportunity. You have lots of different things like this. You would also have the ability as an investor to diversify your portfolio without having to be someone that has a million dollar portfolio. Let's say I'm somebody that owns a $100,000 duplex, and that's an investment property that I have, but I would prefer to not have all of my investment tied up into just one single property. Well, what if I tokenized it and sold, say, 75% of my ownership, and with those funds that I received from selling 75%, I bought a 25% stake in three other duplexes that were similar to the one that I had. Well, then all of a sudden I have a 25% stake in four different duplexes that have a similar profile. So it's the investment that I want, but I have diversified this into four different properties. That way, if something happens and there's a renter that's vacant for a long time at one duplex, I don't get screwed. I don't lose half of my rental income for that period of time. Instead, I just lose a portion of that and I'm still getting my rental income coming in from the other three duplexes. And so that's the idea. That's a way of diversifying that is really only available if you can tokenize this value. You can tokenize these assets and that opens up many different possibilities on an investment side, on even an ownership side. Let's say that I want to purchase a property, but I, for whatever reason, can't get approved for a mortgage or I don't want to go through a bank to get a mortgage. Well, what options do I have? If the house that I would like to purchase is tokenized and there are tokens that hold the value and the control of this property, then what I might be able to do is 
purchase a chunk of tokens that represent this property and also probably purchase the right to live at this property, the right to inhabit the house with the opportunity to own it in the future. And basically, there would probably be a guarantee of me being able to buy a certain amount of tokens every month. And the qualification for that would be that I would have to make payments to the other owners of tokens for this property in order to be able to live there. So I am living there and every month I'm making payments to all these other owners. Probably I just pay it to a smart contract and it divvies it out. And in exchange, all these other owners are maybe giving up, say, 1% of their tokens every month in exchange for a, say, 2% return on their investment. So, you know, basically everybody's happy. Everybody knew what they were getting into to begin with. The investors are making money and making some passive income, although they are slowly basically selling that off over time. And me, as a potential homeowner, I'm able to get into a house and to live there and to build up ownership of this house in a slow way without having to get a mortgage from a bank. And hopefully I would be able to do this in a way that I don't have to pay as much interest as I normally would. If you have ever looked at a 30-year mortgage and how much interest you actually pay on that house, it's a little ridiculous. You can set up models on a tokenized level where you can pay much lower interest overall, but still make it worthwhile for investors and definitely make it worthwhile for you as a homeowner. So there's other options here for ownership. You could do the same thing in reverse. It's like doing a reverse mortgage where let's say I own my house 100% and then I need some money. So instead of doing a home equity line of credit or some type of loan using my home as collateral, I can just have the tokens that represent the value of my home and sell a few tokens. And then investors can buy those up in my house. They see the value of my house, think the value will rise and they will make, you know, whatever it is they'll make on that, depending on how much it rises. And so I sell tokens to those investors and they buy them. I get the money and all of a sudden I have the money I need. I still live in the house. I still own the house, but I have sold a small po portion of ownership to some investors and I'll probably pay them back with interest. And that would probably be within the terms of the contract over time. And that way I would get my full control back over time and they would get the return on their investment in whole. I'm not going to go any further with this real estate example. As you can tell, it can go many different ways. There are so many possibilities like there is with all this stuff. And you could apply this model for a tokenized deed to just about anything. You have a deed for a house. You have a deed for a car. You have deeds for many different assets, usually high dollar assets that someone owns. And you could do this same type of thing with any of it. And it works basically the same way with the same type of potential. Other things that you can tokenize that would be very beneficial would be things like an ID. So let's say that a company starts up and they are offering tokenized IDs. So what happens is that any person that wants a tokenized ID can submit all their information that needs to be validated. So I'd probably submit my name, maybe a picture of my passport, maybe a thumbprint or an eye scan or who knows what, whatever it is they want. And in exchange, they create a verified tokenized ID for me. 
and I can use that ID just like I use a passport or a driver's license or anything like that, but it is tokenized. It's stored online, and it's something that can be proved, and it's likely something that can only be used by me, whether that means I have to give my thumbprint in order to use it, or an eye scan, or a face scan in order to use it, or a password of some kind, you know, who knows what. But however it is that it is kept secure, it is, and I then have an ID that's used online. Now, with this, I can verify who I am on any platform that I go to. So there are many different times when this is important. If you are doing something related to the government, you typically have to identify yourself. Usually, you do this by giving your social security number. However, you probably don't want to give out your social security number online, even to your own government. There are definitely risks involved there. What if instead you could send them a verification token that comes from your ID token and they can verify that this is you, you are who you say you are, and that's all that's needed. You could even do this with zero-knowledge proofs where you're not actually sending any vital information, but you are sending confirmation that you are who you say you are. Maybe it just has your name and one other uh, descriptive type of information about you, and that's it, but all your personal information is hidden, and it's done through a zero-knowledge proof. One really good way that this can be used would be for voting. So with voting, right now, you have the possibility for voter fraud, whether you use paper ballots or electronic ballots. However, if you are using a blockchain platform with verified IDs, it is very, very difficult to commit voter fraud. Every person only has one vote. Everybody on there is completely verified. And unless someone actually mugs somebody, maybe, and forces them to vote the way they want them to, and I guess you'd have to do that probably 10,000 different people to sway the vote, even the smallest amount, unless something like that happens, you're probably going to be pretty sure that this vote in this election has happened the way it's supposed to. And you can even verify this because you can do it on a public blockchain where all the data is stored on a public ledger that anybody can look at. So you can look at it and see who voted and how they voted and all this stuff, but it can also be done in a way that masks the person's name if you want to. If you want it to be a completely public vote, you could do that. If you want it to just verify that, yes, this is a valid person in the county, then it could do that as well and not give an actual name or address or anything like that. There are many different ways of setting it up, obviously, but the point is that you can do voting for public elections in a way that really cuts out at least to a very large extent, probably 99 point something percent of voter fraud and any of that negative stuff that goes on with elections all around the world. Now, this actually has been done in a few places. There have been one or two cities in Switzerland that have implemented voting on blockchain as of the time of this recording. There are plans to do this in many other places, but I have not heard of that being verified and actually happening yet. But it has happened in Switzerland, and there have been a few other places. I'm not quite sure. I think Malta and maybe another island nation. And so this is something that has been done. It has been used by governments even now, and it definitely has potential 
to continue to be used for many different things. This wouldn't even have to occur within a government election. This could happen for voting for shareholders of a company or voting for a DAO or anything else. Being able to vote with a blockchain ID also allows for different types of governance, just period. I've talked about liquid democracy before, and I'll talk about that, I guess, probably again in the case study episode, because that's something that's being worked on on the Cardano project. But the idea here is that everybody gets a vote, every individual. So every ID has the ability to vote on things. And they also have the ability to pass that vote along to someone else. So this could very well happen in a tokenized way, where basically every time there's a vote, a token is created for every ID. Now, those tokens can be sent in as casting a vote, or they can be sent to other people. So I can take my token that represents my vote for the upcoming election or whatever it is that's being voted on. And I could maybe give that to my friend that I know knows a lot more than I do about the issues. And I will let them use my vote with that single token. And I may be able to do this for all votes. I may only want to do it for one vote. I might give it to different people depending on which votes are coming up and maybe let different people vote on different issues. Some of them I will. There are so many different options here. But with this, you can actually do a liquid democracy like this if you can verify IDs and tokenize votes in a way that allows for all this to happen. There is also the potential for direct democracy here because if you can actually verify that real people are voting and that everybody does have a vote, then you can let everybody vote on everything. So you can actually allow the people to vote on things like laws and regulations and things like this instead of just having a representative democracy where they are voting for a single person to represent them in everything. You could also use this verified ID as basically like a security clearance. So let's say that there is a certain government website that only a certain level of government employees are allowed to access. So this is a clearance issue. Some of it's classified information and only certain people can look at it. Well, there are ways of doing this where it's password protected and some sort of biometric scan in order to enter it, that kind of stuff. But you could also do this in a way that verifies your ID. So you could have an ID, a tokenized ID that you can access and that you can submit this ID to the website. It verifies that you are who you are and you have access to a certain amount of information through that portal. And then it gives you that access that you deserve. This can also be done in a physical manner where there are electronic locks on doors and they all have a different clearance level. And I would basically scan my phone, scan, you know, a card or scan my fingerprint or whatever it is, whatever they want to use to uh, verify your tokenized ID. But you can do that. And then your ID has a certain level of clearance associated with this. Now, these types of things do exist now. It's not like blockchain is creating all these great new ideas that never existed before. These do exist in the current world right now. There are plenty of ways to get security clearance through doors and through websites. However, blockchain is adding all these other things that I've already talked about to the mix where you have 
privacy, you have fraud protection, you have a system that is pretty much hack-proof, you have verifiable information without having to give up that information, without having to store all that information. There are a lot of different potential uses here that actually add much more functionality to these types of systems that do exist in today's world already. Now, let's give an example of another blockchain project that is tokenizing things, and I will go with Stellar. Stellar is a fork of Ripple. So if you've heard of Ripple, Stellar was a fork off of that project and is one of my personal favorite projects out there. And what Stellar has done is created a platform that works really well for tokenized assets. And currently, there is a decentralized trading platform that's built on the Stellar network called Stellar X. And on this platform, there are many different tokenized assets. So you can trade in fiat monies of many different types of money around the world, pounds or dollars or euros or whatever, yen, it doesn't matter. As long as someone has submitted a tokenized version of this, you can trade it on there. There are also many different cryptocurrencies, so you can trade Bitcoin and Ethereum and Lumens, which is the currency of the Stellar Network, and many other different currencies. And there are starting to be other things that are tokenized. There is a goal of getting actual stocks tokenized and put on the Stellar Network. And that is something that's being worked on. I don't believe it's actually happened as of this point, but it is a project that is being worked on and does have a lot of potential. Now, I will talk about the tokenized aspect of this because it is a little different. So if you get on the Stellar X platform and you want to buy Bitcoin, you are not actually buying Bitcoin when you are trading on this platform on Stellar X. So basically what's happening is that there is, let's say, 10 Bitcoin that's locked up in a smart contract. And in exchange, there are these 10 Bitcoin tokens that are created. And these are not actual Bitcoins. These are tokenized versions of Bitcoins. They're tokens that represent Bitcoin. And so what happens is these 10 tokens are released. They are traded on the Stellar X network, the trading platform. And if I were to buy one of these tokens, then I just hold a token. And it's a token that represents Bitcoin. It is not Bitcoin itself. And then what happens is I can then sell this Bitcoin. Let's say I buy some Bitcoin for $5,000 and then the price skyrockets to $10,000 a piece. And then I just go ahead and sell my Bitcoin token. Well, I never actually held or physically controlled a Bitcoin at all. I just held a token that represented Bitcoin, but I was able to buy it at the price of Bitcoin, sell it at the price of Bitcoin in the future, and all of this worked out well. There was no way of the Bitcoin that was being represented that not existing. I knew that it existed because I can see it in a smart contract. It exists there. It is locked up there, and it can only be released if someone gives up the token. So let's say it, I bought the Bitcoin at $5,000, but I know I don't ever want to sell it. So what I'm going to do is actually get my physical Bitcoin instead. And so what I'll do is I'll take this Bitcoin token, I will send that to the smart contract, and then I will actually receive a Bitcoin. And I can get that sent to whatever Bitcoin wallet I want. 
So while you are trading tokens on the platform, you can basically cash in those tokens for what they represent. And the same is true of fiat money and of other cryptocurrencies and things like that. So it's a very interesting model. It allows for trading to happen very cheap and very fast and lots of different possibilities there without having to actually transfer assets back and forth. But instead, you can just have these tokens that are moving all around the network and being traded all around, and then they just get cashed in at some point, basically, or never, I mean, you never know. They might just stay locked up in a smart contract and get traded indefinitely. It could work any way that it could possibly work. You never know what the market will do. But Stellar is another very interesting platform and project that is doing this type of thing with tokenizing assets. So I'm going to go ahead and move on here to micropayments. Now, what micropayments are, are exactly what it sounds like, like many other things in this episode. It is basically just making very small, very minuscule payments, which is not very feasible, or it is at least not very practical in most applications in today's world. Because in order to send a payment in today's world, you typically have to pay a fee of some kind. So think of the Visa or MasterCard network. In order to do a transaction, they charge a certain fee for processing that transaction. The same would be true of some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You have to pay a fee in order to send a transaction. The same thing is true of just about anything. There's always a cost to doing a transaction, which means that if you're doing transactions of like half a cent and you're doing those a million times a day, that's not really worth it because the price that it would cost to process all these transactions would probably be greater than the cost of the transactions themselves. And you'd basically have to double the cost in order to make this a viable network and process, which if you're doubling the cost, that's probably not a very good thing for whatever it is you're wanting to do. Let's input a cryptocurrency, for example, that allows for different aspects that really work well for micropayments. So this would be things like fee-less transactions and near instant transactions. And these would work very well for IoT devices. So Internet of Things devices. This is just anything that is connected to the internet. So think a TV or a car or a phone or just about anything. For an example, let me use cars. So especially as we are getting newer and better technology with vehicles and with autonomous driving and AI and this kind of stuff, it is allowing for many different opportunities that didn't really exist before cars were possibly able to drive themselves. However, this also creates many problems and it creates many hurdles. One of those would be, how do you pay for this car service? Well, you could have a third party, let's say Tesla, for example, I use them a lot as an example. Tesla is planning on having a fleet of cars that you can just order on their app. It'll come pick you up and give you a ride and you basically just send a payment into Tesla and that's how it works. It's fairly simple. It's like Uber or a taxi and it's very streamlined. Well, that is one option. What about a more decentralized, tokenized option, since that's what we're talking about today, all the possibilities of blockchain? 
Well, you could have a vehicle that is owned by multiple investors. It is tokenized. Let's say it's a limousine. So this is a high value vehicle. It's a luxury limousine. And you have 10 different people that have ownership stakes in this limousine. Now, this limousine drives itself. So you don't actually need a driver. You don't really need a place to park it, although sometimes that would be nice. And you don't really need a lot of the things that you do with today's vehicles. And this is also an investment. So you might not have a specific owner, not one owner, but you have 10 owners. So how in the world does this work? Well, the way you could do it would be like the Dow model where any of these 10 investors can submit a proposal. It gets voted on majority rules, or maybe you have to get eight out of 10 or nine out of 10 votes, or maybe it has to be unanimous. Who knows? You can set it up however you want. But the investors are able to make decisions and decide on what they're going to do. So maybe they're going to do an upgrade on this limousine and offer more types of liquor inside the limousine so that their guests can drink drinks that they do not have available to them now. Or maybe they're going to recover the seats in something more luxurious and add cooled seats as well as the heated seats that already exist. And, you know, who knows what they'll do. Maybe they're just going to do some maintenance. And something like a transmission flush is not absolutely necessary, but it probably would be good for the longevity of the vehicle. So that would be a decision that the investors would have to make. And you could do this like a Dow model, and everybody would have a tokenized portion of ownership of this limousine. And then when people actually rent the limousine or ask for it to come pick them up and give them a ride, you could basically do micro payments with the guests where as soon as they walk in, they have to scan their phone and this scan connects the limousine to a digital wallet of the patrons. And let's say there's 10 people that get in this limousine and they're all getting a ride to prom. And so these are young people. And normally someone might be a little iffy on if these people are actually going to take care of the vehicle, if they're actually going to pay in the end and things like this. But you do not have to worry about this stuff under this model I'm discussing here. So you would have these kids would scan their phones. Maybe one is paying for all of it, or maybe all of them are paying separately. It really doesn't matter. It basically acts as a smart contract. And so what happens is these people scan their phones. It connects a limousine with one or 10 or anywhere in between digital wallets. And then what happens is it automatically charges. It could charge every mile that the limousine drives and it could charge another five cents or $5 or whatever the cost may be. And it could do this with drinks. As soon as you pull a drink out, there's a sensor there and it automatically charges whoever it is that ends up drinking the drink. And you could do this um, however you wanted. You would have probably video cameras in there. And so if the people trashed your limousine, they would be responsible for paying for it. And that could be paid automatically. And you could automatically withdraw the funds there. If one of the wallets runs out or they all run out of money and they still wanted to go another 10 miles, well, you would probably stop the limousine and get them to figure out another mode of payment before it continues on down the road. And there are lots of different things here that could be done. But the point is that if you are doing all this on a tokenized blockchain model, you have lots of different options here that 
didn't exist beforehand. And if you have the ability to use micropayments where you have these very small charges that are being charged on a very frequent basis, but with little to no fees associated with it, so it's actually economical and it makes sense, then you have the options for a lot of other stuff, a lot of new stuff. There are other pain points when it comes to cars and roads, and this would be who pays for the roads. Now, I'm not getting into everything I got into on the anarcho-capitalism episode where I talked about who builds the roads if there is no government. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about today's world where typically we have a government, they pay for the roads, and they pay for it with your money, with your tax dollars. And so the question is, what is a fair way of getting people to pitch in with their tax money for paying for roads. You have a gas tax, which does make a lot of sense. But then again, with electric vehicles and stuff, that's not really working out the way it was intended. You also have property taxes and you have different types of toll roads. And there's lots of different models that exist out there. But if you look at the model for micropayments and having scanners that would basically scan each vehicle as it goes down the road, then you could basically get cars to pay for the amount of driving they do. They actually pay for the wear and tear on the road that they are responsible for. So if I drive five miles a day and that's it, then I am going to not pay very much for my portion of paying for the roads in my area. However, if I am driving 50 miles a day, I am going to be paying much more because what's happening is that my vehicle is being tracked and money is automatically being taken out of a digital wallet and account that I have set up with my government. And so they are automatically getting paid for their maintenance taxes or whatever you want to call it, these road taxes, as I am driving. And so this is done in a very fair way. If I am not using roads much, I'm not paying much on road tax. If I'm using roads a lot, I am paying more on a road tax. So there are some pretty fair models that could exist if you implement some blockchain technology with some micropayments and probably digital currencies or cryptocurrencies. And you could do a lot of stuff that would be very beneficial and economical and make a whole lot of sense. For some examples of cryptocurrencies that actually work well for micropayments, I'm, I'll talk about IOTA and Nano. So I have mentioned that Bitcoin has transaction fees that can get relatively high. It wouldn't make a lot of sense to send 10 cents worth of Bitcoin to somebody because you're going to pay more than that just to get the transaction to go through, usually. And that also depends on how the network is being used and how clogged it is and the value of Bitcoin, all this different stuff that I'm not going to get into. But the point is that Bitcoin doesn't work well for micropayments, nor do many cryptocurrencies out there. However, there are some that do. The first one I'll mention here would be IOTA. IOTA does allow for micropayments because their transactions are nearly instant and essentially free. They are free, you don't have to pay anything, but the way that this network works is that if you want to have a transaction confirmed, and basically you want to submit a transaction of any kind, you must validate two of the previous transactions by other people and other transactions. And so you are basically doing the work of validating this network in order to pay your way, in a sense, for your transaction to go through. 
and that's basically the way it works. So you don't actually pay a fee. There's no transaction fee, but you do need to give up a little bit of processing power and computing power and energy, therefore, to validate two previous transactions, and that is what gives you the ability to get yours to go through. And this actually happens very quickly, and it does not actually cost anything in a tangible way. The way the IOTA network is set up, it actually doesn't have any blocks. They use a system called the Tangle. And basically the way this works is that a single transaction is entangled with others. So it's not that you have a block of transactions that gets validated and and that's linked to a previous block and then a new one is linked to that one and so on and so forth. Instead, you have a single transaction that's linked to a branch of other different transactions. It doesn't have to be any specific one. It doesn't have to be any specific order. It's just the way the network works. It pairs it and tangles it with multiple transactions. Those transactions are linked and entangled with multiple other transactions. And you can picture this web, this almost like tree branching out of all these different transactions. And instead of them being verified as groups and as blocks, they are verified and connected through this entanglement system. And that's the way the IOTA chain works. And so it's very different, but in doing so, they can basically do instant and free transactions. They have some deals with a few automakers, with some energy companies, and with many prominent companies around the world in order to basically use their technology and their network to do micropayments like this. And so it is something that works very well. Now, if you want an actual blockchain example, then we would have to go for Nano. And Nano is a cryptocurrency that originally was called Ryblox. That's when I first discovered it. And it did change its name um, at some point. And its focus is also to be extremely fast, nearly instant, and free. Now, Nano actually is a blockchain, but the way it is set up, according to the official Nano website, is that every account, each account has its own blockchain. So with this, every account is on a separate blockchain that is basically linked to itself. And what happens is that the individuals provide computational power for their own transaction. So although you don't have to pay a fee for transactions, they are free. Nano is similar to IOTA in that you are using your processing power to basically pay your way and get the transaction confirmed. And with this, and with each account having its own blockchain in a sense that is then connected to an overall ledger, you are not having to process these massive blocks that are attached to a main blockchain. Instead, you have basically all these different side chains that are then connected to the main chain, but most of the work is going on on these side chains, and they don't all have to record these giant large blocks of data. And with this, it can operate extremely fast and extremely cheap. And that is the main advantage of Nano. 
And so another interesting aspect here is that a nano wallet will actually pre-cache the proof of work needed to confirm transactions. So basically what will happen is that your computer will do the processing power, the computational power ahead of time for processing a transaction. Then when you actually do a transaction, all that work has already been done and it's pre-cached and then it basically just gets used. And so it's nearly instant. It doesn't have to do all this computational work at the time. It does all this validating computational work ahead of time and it is stored up. And then when you do a transaction, that is pulled out and that is used. So if you remember when I talked about proof of work blockchains, you have these miners that are all solving complex algorithms in order to win the right to process another block. And in doing so, they will be able to validate the next block that gets added to the blockchain and so on. And that's how the proof of work system works. You use your computer's processing power and your energy and your hardware to solve these complex algorithms and that validates transactions. Well, with Bitcoin, for example, all this happens as soon as a transaction is started. So a transaction is started, then all of these things have to happen, all this computation has to happen before the block actually gets validated. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. Whereas with Nano, this stuff is done ahead of time. So your computer and your wallet will actually go ahead and do all this work ahead of time. Then when you send a transaction, it's already done and it doesn't really have to do a whole lot. It's nearly instantaneous and the transaction goes through. So I know this example of Nano and IOTA are cryptocurrencies and technically could have fit into the cryptocurrency episode. But the point is that if you have a currency that is nearly instantaneous and virtually free, then that that allows for many of these other blockchain use cases that I am talking about in this episode, such as micropayments and other things of that nature. And so that's why I bumped it into this current episode. So moving on from that, there are other blockchains that I'll at least have to mention, and these would be private and permissioned blockchains. So I will talk a little bit more about this in the next episode, the themes episode, but there are different companies that have set up their own blockchains. These would be companies like IBM and JP Morgan and companies like this that are very well known and they have created blockchains, but they are not decentralized. Instead, they have created centralized blockchains that you have to have permission in order to gain access to and in order to use and do transactions on. And so there are blockchains like this that do not really meet up with the ideologies of blockchain technology the way it was first thought up and created by Satoshi, but they operate in different ways and they do have their purposes. So again, I'll talk about that a little bit in the next episode. But I think for this episode, that's all I am going to talk about. That pretty much wraps up at least an overview on many different use cases for blockchain technology. We talked about all different kinds of stuff. There's all different kinds of examples and projects that I mentioned. Hopefully it all makes sense and hopefully it all ties together. I tried to explain things as much as I could without going completely overboard and repeating myself a hundred times. I tried to just repeat myself maybe twice and explain it in different ways to make sure that those who are not very familiar with this type of technology are able to grasp what's going on here and have an idea of what I'm talking about. 
So hopefully I've achieved that. Feel free to send me feedback on if I have or not. Now, overall, let's just wrap this up by saying that blockchain is for currencies, for cryptocurrencies. That's how it's created for Bitcoin. But that's just one aspect of the technology. That's just one use case here. And there are many others. And that is what this episode has been for. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you to those that support the podcast through reviews, through word of mouth, through ratings, through Patreon, through all the different ways, through sending me feedback and emailing me and chatting with me and following me on Twitter, all this kind of stuff. It is all very helpful. It is all supportive. And thank you very much for doing so. Please come back next time for the themes episode of blockchain, where I talk about blockchain ideology and responses to this new blockchain technology from governments, from corporations, from individuals. And we'll talk about all that kind of stuff should be very interesting. And we'll continue on from there and wrap up the blockchain series in the episode after that, when I do some case studies on specific blockchain projects and cryptocurrencies. So that'll be very interesting. If you have enjoyed the previous few episodes, you should definitely enjoy these ones coming up. And again, please come back. Thank you for listening. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.